gig. Amen. Psalm 24. Going to start to read at verse 1. It says, The Psalm of David, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Verse 6 says, This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. And there's a word that just says selah, which if you're not familiar with that word, means to stop, to pause, to consider, to reflect about what you've just heard. Amen. In our first lesson we endeavored to lay a foundation of understanding that the reason that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, or the word we used for that was the incarnation, was primarily to provide a way for us to be saved from sin. Amen. And we know that Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment so that we might be saved and not only be delivered from the consequences of sin, but that we might also have the opportunity to go to heaven to be with the Lord for eternity. And that's, I hope that's your hope this morning. And what we wanted to emphasize in the first lesson was that the incarnation of God in flesh was not limited to only providing a way to have new birth or to have a new life, to be born again, but that the incarnation is also inseparable from our new life or what happens after we've been born again. It's wonderful to be born again. Wonderful to be born of the water and the Spirit, to have our sins washed away in Jesus' name, to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That is what we call the new birth. But after the new birth, it makes sense that there is a new life. And what the Lord provided and continues to provide through His death, burial, and resurrection continues to impact and be effective in our new life and the power that he provided through that and its effectiveness in our new life is vitally important in the subject of these lessons and in the subject of prayer amen with new life comes new relationship prayer is the way in which we communicate with god in this new relationship and our close connection and this is in bold in my notes so it must be important Our close connection with God is vital for our salvation. You must be born again. That's not negotiable. Jesus and Nicodemus had that conversation in John 3, and the Lord said, if you're not born again of war and spirit, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is not available. He said, you must be born again of water and spirit. But in an ongoing sense, to stay saved, to stay ready for the return of Jesus Christ, prayer and our close connection with God is not negotiable. Amen. And let me just touch when I say to stay prepared for the return of Jesus Christ, there is a doctrine that gets around in some places that when you have been born again, that there is no possible way that you can lose that salvation. Uh, It's called, sometimes referred to as the once saved, always saved doctrine. Sometimes, to use it a big fancier name, they call it the eternal unconditional salvation. It's a nice idea, 
that I can be born again and then basically do whatever I want and not threaten my salvation, but it's not biblical. That's the problem. If, if, uh, if I could find a way to support that scripturally, I would, because that would make life a lot easier. Amen? You're just born again and do whatever you want and everything's taken care of. That would, but when I read my Bible, it talks to us about living righteously. It talks to us about being unspotted from the world. It talks to us about separating ourselves from the works of the flesh. And it lets us know very clearly that if we are involved in those things, that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So once we have been born again, there is a need to continue to live that new life. And your prayer relationship with God is vital for that salvation and to preserve your salvation. When other things or other people even get between us and God or they're more important to us than God, not only does our relationship with God suffer, but our salvation becomes under threat as well. Amen. I'm thankful. Let me balance that out a little bit this morning by saying this. I'm thankful for the grace and the mercy of God that He does not cut me off every time my attitude is less than perfect or when I allow other things to distract me. I'm grateful that He's not... We, we might say he doesn't have a hair trigger. He's not sitting there looking for an opportunity to cut you off, but he's merciful and he's gracious. But at the same time, if I have an imbalance in my relationship with God when he is not first and my relationship with him is impacted by other factors, I become vulnerable both to my flesh and to the enemy of my soul. Not only do I become vulnerable, but that applies to you it applies to all of us. Turn to Matthew chapter 25 if you would want to read a familiar passage. I'm going to try not to be too long. We got into the Word a little late today. I'll try and be like the Lord and be merciful. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1. It says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, or they had backup, we might say. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us." But he answered and said, Verily or truly I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by going into the, the, the culture of what took place with the wedding and the marriage process, but I do want to point out a few things that are significant about this situation and the fact that these young ladies were waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom as part of the wedding process. And these are the points that I want us to consider. Firstly, the time of the groom's return was unknown. That's worth noticing. Secondly, 
It's directly compared to the coming of the Lord, but it is unknown as well. The purity of these young ladies was never in question. It doesn't say there were five pure and five impure. It describes them all as virgins or young ladies that have not yet been married. Their purity was never in question. It also is important to notice that having enough oil was very, very important. And the other thing that I want to point out from this story the Lord shared was that you need to have your own oil. That you cannot draw from that of the others that you wait with. If you don't take anything else home from this lesson today about prayer, take this. You must have your own oil. Every one of us has to have our own oil. Amen. I can benefit from your prayers, and I do. I know that many of you pray for me, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Please continue to do so. But your prayers cannot replace the urgency in my own life to keep my vessel full of oil, to go to the one who gives the oil, to go to the one who anoints and fills us and refreshes us again and again. I can get a little greasy, if you like, hanging around godly people from their oil, but I can't fill my vessel with their oil. And at some point, if my vessel runs low, I become in peril of losing my own soul. I mean, I must be topped up, and I believe I must be topped up daily. Amen. And so the primary focus of these lessons in this series is on our daily time of prayer as a part of our relationship, our commitment, and our consecration to the Lord. I'm not talking about when you pray before you eat. We, we, we pray in many different ways and forms throughout the day, and that's fine. Some of you may pray when you're going for a walk. I do. The dog looks at me strangely sometimes, but that's okay. Some of you might pray while you're driving. I do that sometimes as well. Some of us, you know, we, we, I pray for a car park when I get into a busy shopping center. You know why I do it? Because my mum did it and it works. <laughs> and the Lord has given me a car park in a busy shopping center many, many times. But when I'm praying for a car park at the local shopping center, I'm not taking an hour and a half of prayer. You pray, Lord, I need a car park five seconds that's prayer that's not your daily consecration and your relationship with god though that is an overflow of that relationship and when i drive my car and i talk to the lord sometimes and his presence comes into the car i love that but that is also not my daily time of consecration and prayer of the lord because if i was to pray in a fashion that is focused and undistracted while i drive I better be ready to meet the Lord because I'm going to have an accident. And so there's nothing wrong with those, I guess you could say, secondary avenues of prayer. But the purpose for our teaching is to help us to grow, to understand, and to affirm to those that already understand prayer in that relationship sense, in that getting alone with God. Amen. So you might, you might pray with your family. You might pray with your spouse. You might pray with young people. You might pray with brethren. You can pray with all kinds of people, but all of those things are an extension or are supposed to be an extension of that time where it's just you and Jesus and nobody else. And that's really the focal point of what we're talking about. Amen. Bless the Lord. The, the, the English word 
let me step back. Let me say this: when we continue to talk about prayer, if somebody messages me or calls me on the phone to talk to me about something that's troubling them or a situation in their life, I will often say, "I'll keep you in my prayers," or "I'll pray for you." Now, how many times? Let's let's not have a show of hands, otherwise you might have to have some repentance before we go any further. But have you ever said those words to somebody? and then maybe not actually gone ahead and done it. Now, your words might have brought comfort, but your prayers haven't done a whole lot because you didn't pray. And so it is my practice as much as I can. I'd like to say I'm 100%, but I'd be being dishonest. When I have that conversation or I get that message, I'm stopping what I'm doing and I'm going to pray for that person right then and there. Again, that's not necessarily for a couple of hours, but it is an extension of our relationship that we have with God. Amen. And so when we look at the New Testament, as is often the case with Scripture, we can get one word in English that is translated from a bunch of different Greek words in the original. And we don't need necessarily to be Greek scholars this morning, but there are around about five different Greek words that, we, that are translated as prayer in the New Testament. And these are some of the meanings of those words. To pray in earnest with intense conviction, to beg or beseech, to make requests, to call near or to invite, to interrogate. Now, that's a word you don't normally think about when you think about prayer, but it has a positive application as well. It's not trying to find out who committed the crime, but it's about a deliberate persistence and asking questions and making requests in a direct manner. That's the, we think of interrogation, we think of in a court situation or police and a criminal, but it also has that positive application. And the last one is to make request in hope. Now, these all overlap each other in their meanings, but they give us some insight into the fact that prayer is, more, is much richer and fuller than sometimes we stop to consider. Sometimes we consider it from one aspect when there is prayer is a lot more than just now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and the rest of it, and hopefully you don't use that practice, but... But they all, there is, there is a, a fullness in our relationship in prayer that God wants us to have, that He wants us to experience, and that incorporates many of these different meanings. You see, prayer, and many of you can testify to this, but prayer can vary in length and intensity, depending on the situation and how we're being led by the Spirit of the Lord. I'll give you an example. If you go to the Lord because you need an extra 20 bucks to make rent this week, you'll pray at a certain level of intensity. But if you go to the Lord because you've got a loved one that's in hospital, hanging between life and death, or a loved one that's walked away from God, I hope your intensity goes up a bit from that 20 bucks you needed from the rent. There are situations where there is the, the need sort of determines the intensity of our prayer. And James, and we may get to this in another lesson, but James talks about fervent prayer. Fervency speaks of intensity, of, of strength, of passion, of, of going after something. And so their prayer, it's not that the prayers are less important, but the situation often governs the way that we pray. If I get a phone call because somebody's been in an accident, and God forbid this happens, and they don't know if they're going to make it, I'm not praying the same way as if I was to bless the food. But we're stopping what we're doing, and we're going after the Lord with an intensity because the need dictates the intensity of our prayer. Amen. Or the difference between 
when we might be rejoicing in a miracle that God has done for us. And we go to the Lord and we're worshiping and thanking Him. Or how we approach the Lord and we're convicted of things that we've done that we shouldn't have done. There's two very different approaches to prayer. One is the, the, the celebration. The other one is the God forgive me. And that repentance that comes over us. Amen. And so there are several very important principles that we're going to cover regarding prayer in this series. But possibly the most important one, you may dispute that, that's okay. When we think about prayer and our relationship with God in that personal time of prayer is to understand that we are dependent upon Jesus for everything. Everything. Not the really hard stuff, but everything. We depend upon Him. And when we get a hold of that, it will help us to understand and change the way that we pray. The Lord said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then he said, for without me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, you'll only be able to take care of the basics and I'll take care of the big stuff. He said, without me, without that connection, without that being connected to the vine, without that being that branch, you can do nothing. And you might say, well, I got up and went to work and I did this and I did that. None of that is possible without Him. When you inhale, it's His breath. We sang it this morning. When It's your breath in our lungs. And so be careful not to say, I can do stuff without God. Because all He has to do is take that part and you're in a world of trouble. He takes away your breath, you're in a world of trouble. We depend upon Him for everything for everything and when he said for without me you can do nothing the word without here includes the idea of a separation or of a distance that is in between and that's why he said you must abide in me because if you're not abiding you're good for nothing that's what he said now nobody likes to be told that you're good for nothing what he's saying is you won't be able to do anything he's not saying you're without value but he's saying, if you're not connected to me, there's nothing that you're going to be able to do that's of any real value. Because everything comes from him. The scripture says that every good and perfect gift comes down from him. Every good and perfect gift. And when we approach prayer from the recognition that without him, we can do nothing. And we make it part of the way we depend on him for everything, it will change our lives will change the way that we pray. Turn to Matthew 6 with me if you would. I'm not seeing too many people rubbing their shoulders or hugging themselves, so we must be okay. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. It says, And when thou prayest... Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward. They've got what they wanted. They wanted people to see them. That's what they got. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. You ever noticed, well, I'm going to read on in a minute, this is just something that's just come to me. You ever noticed that there are some people 
in the church that it just sort of seems like things they've got things together better than others or that there's just there's a peace or a stability or a the lord's hand seems to be on their life and you think well you know what makes them special nothing makes them special we're all valued in the sight of the lord but it's when we get a hold of this be with your father in secret thing that he will reward us openly people will know the book of acts lets us know that they took note of the apostles that they had been with jesus they didn't say we read their resume and saw that they were highly qualified you know peter had a phd in fishing but they said they've been with jesus people can tell when you've been with jesus amen let's read on verse 7 but when you pray use not vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking be not ye therefore like unto them for your father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him after this manner therefore pray ye our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen for if you forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you forgive not men their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses now there's a lot in this passage about forgiveness forgiving others we're going to get to that in a future lesson i'm going to take some time with this passage that will definitely not finish today but many many of you will recognize that this passage of scripture contains what is often called the lord's prayer some of you might have had to memorize it at school if you went to a religious school you might have had to go there and say it again over and over again and some churches practice the repeating of the lord's prayer out loud every time they get together now it's not my place to question people's sincerity but the irony of repeating this passage over and over again by memory is that the passage actually warns us not to do that the passage says that we should not where is it in verse verse 7 says don't use vain or empty repetitions as the heathen do for they think that by saying a lot of stuff that god hears them the lord said i already know what you're gonna what you need before you ask so saying it ten thousand times is not what it's about and he, he's letting us know because there he was talking when he talks about the heathen he's talking about gentiles and people in the, the nations around them that were idol worshippers if who's ever heard of a prayer wheel if you haven't you can go home and look that up but there are there are beliefs in the world that if you take in in some cultures and some faiths it almost looks like a a cylinder looks like one of those things they used to use at the football years ago and they would write prayers on the outside or even put prayers in it and they spin them and the belief is that every time it goes around the prayer is said so if you you got a pretty good hand-eye coordination thing going on you can say that prayer an awful lot in a short amount of time but that's vain repetition that's not what the lord wants he doesn't want us to just repeat things mindlessly there's nothing wrong with repetition in going back to the lord and asking again and again and we'll get to some of that later on but when it's vain and it's just empty now i don't want to step on anybody's toes but there are pentecostals that pray like prayer wheels that repeat words over and over again simply by habit 
They can be in a prayer room or in a prayer meeting and you hear them say the same word again and again and again and again and again. And if you're able to hook them up to a monitor for their mind activity, be flatline, be brrrr, just nothing happening, but they're just saying that word again and again and again. That's vain repetition. The Lord is not impressed if you can say Jesus a thousand times in a prayer meeting. Even, and I won't be careful here, but even speaking in tongues can be just repetition. Prayer, genuine prayer, needs to have our heart and our mind engaged in what is happening. Because I'll be honest, and I don't want to sound like I've got a bad attitude here, but there are times I feel like tapping some folks on the shoulder and say, say something different, please. We, we need to engage our hearts and our minds because you can come to church long enough that you can develop the habit. I, I, let me be transparent. There are times I'm praying and I'm thinking, what did I just say? I have to stop and say, Lord, I'm sorry, and get my brain back in the, in the situation, get my heart back involved, and think about what I'm doing. Rela- you know, when you, in your natural relationships, if you say the same thing over and over and over again to your family members, how's that going to go for you? It's like the man that said, my wife said, you never listen to a thing I say, and I thought that was a strange way to start a conversation. Think about it. You'll get there in a moment. He hadn't heard anything she'd said before him. Now, none of you ladies be elbowing your husbands, all right? Let's be gracious and merciful here. But it's the same for the Lord. He knows his name is Jesus. He's got that covered. And we need to call on his name in prayer. But you don't get, it's not, there's not some reward point system where if you say it a thousand times, you're going to answer. It doesn't work like that. We've got to engage our hearts and our minds and not just be involved in vain repetition. Amen. Everybody's going to be a little bit paranoid next time we have a prayer meeting and get really quiet in case the pastor's listening. I'm not, that's not my point. Amen. But when you read the parallel passage in Luke, you'll see that Jesus is responding to a request from the disciples to teach us to pray. And so in verse 9 of Matthew, Jesus said, after this manner, or in this fashion, and he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer as a template or a structure to use as an example. Amen. So when you're in that situation where, God forbid, somebody's life is hanging in the balance or their soul is in peril, you don't need to be chanting, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You need to be able to say, In the name of Jesus. And you need to raise that intensity, involve your heart and your mind and your faith, and get a hold of the hem of his garment. Amen. Amen. And hopefully, to help us, what I want to try to start today is to help us to understand that this template or this example of prayer the Lord gave here is bring that together with some of the things we covered in the first lesson about the incarnation and how that fits together. And if you only, if you're, if you're still, you don't get that by the time I'm done, come back next time, which will probably be in a couple of weeks because Brother Sham will be here next weekend. But God's Word is not randomly put together or directionless. Everything in the Scripture fits together like a beautiful design. 
Now, the challenge is that sometimes because we don't know the design, we don't see how it fits. And sometimes when we don't know the designer as well as we should, we don't see how it fits. Now, I, I don't know much about joinery or woodwork. I did a little bit of it in school. It was pretty terrible. My mum still has a little cutting board that I made for her in year eight. Aunt mum's great. They keep you junk for all these years. That little veggie cutting board she's used faithfully since I was in year eight, which was 1984. And it is literally worn so thin now it's practically a wooden bowl instead of a cutting board, but she won't, she won't throw that thing away. But if you, if you understand much about joinery and timber work, and you look at the many different ways, Brother Paul could probably give us a session on this off the top of his head, but the different ways that the wood is cut so that when the pieces are connected, there's no gap. There's no, it doesn't wobble. It's not loose. But when it's done, in fact, if, you, if you're interested and you like to look into stuff, if you go home and, and Google Japanese timber joinery and see some of the incredible joints that they use, it's mind-blowing. You, and then when they join together, you can't even see where the lines are. That's how the Word of God is. The issue is not the design. The issue is our understanding of the design. Amen. And so God has specifically given patents and designs in the Scripture that have a purpose. And in each period of history throughout Scripture, in each covenant, in each dispensation, whatever word you like to use, the, the components of that time actually reflect a pattern of another covenant and another covenant and you see the different things that God established and instigated that all go together throughout scripture it wasn't that the Lord had one plan in the beginning and said well okay this is our first effort let's throw that out we can improve that and he just kept trying to get it better what the Lord did he did improve because when he came in the flesh it was the pinnacle of his plans and his designs but it wasn't that he was you know the guy that invented the light bulb they say he had to try how many times for he got it to work God wasn't like that he wasn't at 999 failed attempts and then one that finally I got this right everything he did was accurate and so everything so I'm going to Jolene if you want to put that, that picture on the wall for me ventured into PowerPoint territory with the help of my daughter because she doesn't trust me to do on my own throughout scripture I'm going to take a little bit of time with this, so stay with me. If you go across the top row, we have brazen altar, brazen laver, and holy place. Some of you know what that's speaking about. But for those of you that don't, in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, when the Lord met with Moses on the mountain and he gave Moses the law, and then he said, okay, we're going to build a church house. We're going to build a place of worship. And he, he gave Moses so much specific details that Moses wasn't even given a choice about any of it. The Lord didn't say, oh, you pick the color for that or you choose the measurements for that. God gave him every specific detail for every single part. And I promise you, while they were building it, they probably thought, you know, we could do this a lot easier if we just did it our way. Every time they packed that thing up and moved it, they had to carry that stuff. It was made out of gold and brass. It wasn't made out of plastic. It was heavy. But God said, this is how it's going to be. And when you came into the outer courtyard of the tabernacle and if you look this up you, you can find this online as well you, you see that the first piece of equipment that was there was the brazen brazen just means made of brass 
there was this great big altar that was the biggest piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle. And it was there that the sacrifices were brought. There was an evening and a morning sacrifice that just was part of their national worship. There were particular days throughout the calendar where special sacrifices were given. There were sacrifices that were offered to consecrate the priesthood. There were sacrifices where the people could come and offer a sacrifice because they had sinned or because they wanted to worship the Lord. It was, it was this ongoing thing. It was this, this altar that was continually having animal sacrifice offered upon it. And then when the sacrifice had taken place, the priesthood would then progress to the brazen laver, which was basically just a giant tub, like a giant wash basin. And you can look up how big that thing if you want to. But when they had done what they needed to do with the altar, that was the place where they were washed. And then when they had gone through both of those steps, they went into the holy place. And in there, we could, I could teach on that for a, a long time. I don't want to get distracted this morning. But in the holy place were, were articles of furniture and things that represented the Word of God, prayer and praise and the Spirit of God was all in that place. And ultimately, there was the Holy of Holies. And we think, well, why did God do all that stuff? Why did He do all that stuff? Because you see, when He came in the flesh, in the second row, He died for our sins he was buried and then he rose again we, we all that part we're all pretty solid with but then we know when he rose again and the church was born in the book of acts that the new birth that's recorded in acts chapter 2 and verse 38 when they said to peter what must we do peter said you have to repent of your sins you've got to be baptized in the name of jesus christ to have those sins washed away and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which they had all just seen happen on that day. And so this pattern, and when you, when you, you get into, I believe it's the book of Colossians, and in Romans it talks about us being buried with Him in baptism. And so this structure and this design that God gave throughout all of the Scripture, it, that, that's going that way, but the lines followed through that altar that was there in the tabernacle was looking ahead to the old rugged cross. And then the cross was preparing a way that you and I could repent of our sins and die out to our old lives. The laver which the priest watched in looked ahead to his burial, which then we are buried with him in baptism. We, In the New Testament, the idea of burial and cleansing come together in baptism because we are buried with him in baptism. Amen. And then we know that in the holy place or that place where God's Spirit met with the priests, the Lord had new life in the resurrection, and we are filled with the Holy Ghost. This, none of this is a coincidence. This is all for a purpose. It's, it's not just the Lord thought, let's make up some weird and crazy stuff. But God had a design throughout the Scripture. Now, for some of you, this is old hat, and you've been hearing it all your lives, and if that's the case, you are blessed. I mean that sincerely. If you've grown up in a church that teaches you this stuff, you are blessed. But we've always, or nearly always, been taught this regarding salvation and the pattern of the new birth. Death, burial, resurrection, altar, cleansing, holy place. We're shown that so often when we're taught about what it means to be born again and the pattern that the Lord has given us. But just as we established in the first lesson a couple of weeks ago, the incarnation was not limited to simply being born again. 
but rather it is still effective in our life today regardless of how long ago you were born again this pattern also is still effective today regardless of how long ago you were born again amen because if you look back in the old testament before moses before we had the tabernacle and all the furniture and everything that went with that you'll find there was an altar there was an altar present when people approached god as far back as cain and abel noah job abraham isaac and jacob that pattern of approaching god with the sacrificial act of worship has existed since the book of Genesis. In fact, you can take it back a step further than Cain and Abel and say that when Adam and Eve sinned and the Lord had to cover them, he took the skins of an animal. That animal gave its life and it became the very first type of the cross. So if it existed from Genesis, this pattern, this weird-looking grid I've got going on here, if that existed from Genesis right up to the new birth... Why would we think it would stop there? Why would we think that it would stop there? Amen. The altar, the altar of sacrifice in the Old Testament incorporated several components. And again, this is, this is some of these subjects you could do 10-week studies on their own, so I'm just hitting the high notes. But the altar incorporated several components. Firstly, the recognition of and the confession of sins. They did that when they came to offer sacrifice. The seeking of forgiveness for those sins. The acknowledgement of the majesty and glory and holiness of God. The bringing of an acceptable sacrifice to worship Him. There were some pretty tough rules about what was acceptable. Now that didn't mean that you could be left out if you couldn't afford it. There were ways that you could bring your best, whatever your social status was. And if you were the poorest of the poor, you could bring some fine flour. Amen. There was, there was always a way. Now, in the book of Exodus, when they're preparing for the first Passover, there's a wonderful verse that I love where it says, if, thou, if your house is too small for the lamb. In other words, you don't have enough people in your home to, to consume the lamb. To, you're able to join. There, there was a way provided for everybody. So nobody was left out. Amen. There was also the bringing of an, I've mentioned that, the bringing of an acceptable sacrifice to worship the Lord. And there was the renewal, repair, and restoration of relationship with God, either as a nation or as individuals. There were sacrifices that were offered on behalf of the whole nation, and there were sacrifices that you were required to offer as an individual. Amen. So, bringing this back to the Lord's Prayer. My goodness, where did that time go? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, and we're nearly done for today. The Lord said... After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, hallowed is just an old English word that you probably don't use every day that simply means holy. It's, it's a statement of God's glory, of His holiness. Amen. Now, we'll often point at this verse to teach the importance of praise and worship when we approach God. And so we should. The psalmist said in the 100th Psalm in the 4th verse, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Amen. And all of that is true. We ought to approach him with worship 
and praise and reverence. But we've got to be careful that we don't undervalue this verse because genuine recognition of the majesty and the holiness of God must include the recognition of our sinful condition before Him. When we become, the more we become aware of how great He is, the more it ought to reveal to us of how great we aren't. So when we say, Our Father which art in heaven, your name is great and holy, it's not lighthearted, it's not flippant, it's not just throwing around vain repetition, but it is, it is an acknowledgement. The, the one that we are approaching is the creator of all the earth who robed himself in flesh because I'm in sin. And so when I come into his presence and I acknowledge and recognize who he is, it simultaneously reveals who I am. John said it in Revelation chapter 1. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. When he saw the vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ, his shortcomings, he was overwhelmed by his unworthiness to be in the presence of the King of Kings. So when we read that verse again, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, it's not just about praise and worship because genuine acknowledgement of him recognizes that I am so, so short of that mark and that I am not able to be in his presence of my own merit. Amen. And we do not shed blood on an altar anymore because he shed his blood for us to wash away our sins. However, we do need to bring sacrifice. Paul said in Romans 12 and 1, I beseech you, or I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. The fulfillment of these two verses, or the application of these two verses in Romans, demands that we both recognize His worthiness and have a genuine heartfelt desire to turn away from our sin and be transformed continually. He said part of that process of presenting yourself is not being conformed, but continuing to be transformed. Now, if I need to continue to be transformed, and I certainly do, that means that in me there is still that which is imperfect. Amen. It doesn't, you know, when we talk about, well, you know, I don't think I've done anything wrong, it's not always about being conscious of sins that we've committed. It's not always about coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I know I robbed that bank the other day and probably shouldn't have stolen that car and shouldn't have poisoned the neighbor's dog at 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever. It's not about that, but it's about recognizing that as Paul said, he said in Romans chapter 7, he said, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Now, he was born again. He was washed in the blood, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. But he said that in me, there is, in my natural man, 
There is no good thing. He didn't say, I've got a couple of things I'm keeping away, reserved. He said there's nothing that in his presence is of any value. John said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Again, it's not saying, well, I can sin a little every day and God will forgive me. It's a statement that acknowledges and declares our flawed humanity. And so no matter how awesome you think you've been this week, when you come into His presence, if you acknowledge His greatness, you must, by default, acknowledge your own shortcomings. It's not about self-condemnation. It's not about saying I'm a filthy, wretched person. It's about recognizing how great He is and how flawed I am and how everything I have comes from Him and I need Him for everything. So when we use His example, His pattern, and this is the only verse of the Lord's Prayer we'll get to today, that after this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's not just praise and worship. It is our altar. It is our dying to sin daily. It is our taking up our cross. Remember, we're not talking about praying for a parking spot or your food or a friend that calls you on the phone. We're talking about that part of our day. When, as he said in Matthew 6, we go into the closet, we close the door, we get alone with just us and Jesus, and we present ourselves to him. Amen. Amen. Genuine repentance includes both sorrow and regret for what we've done in sinning against God and the changing of our actions, thoughts, and directions. It includes both of those components. Amen. Now, when we talk about this, about coming into the presence of the Lord and being aware of our own shortcomings and our flawed nature and our human frailties and the fact that we're just made out of the dust, it can seem like we're just so puny. You know, like when you look down out of the plane and you can barely see the cars or, or you look at an ant and God is just... He feels... It's just like, how does this even work? Because He's so incredible, so majestic. But you have to remember in the midst of all of that what prayer is about. It's about relationship. It's about relationship. And even though He is holy and He is all power and He is everything that the Scripture ascribes Him to be, don't overlook the fact that in the Lord's example He said, Our Father. He didn't just say, O great and holy, distant, faraway God of the galaxies. He said, He's our Father. And so even though when we come to Him, we acknowledge His majesty and His holiness, and we recognize our shortcomings, He wants us to come. The Lord said, except you be as a little child. He wants us to come to Him as our Heavenly Father. Not without respect, not without any of that, but that relationship of love, where that little child is subject and obedient and reliant upon their father for everything. Little kids depend on their parents for everything. Everything. Kids don't start contributing back to the household until they get much older. But when they're little, everything is provided. And that's how it's meant to be. That's the role of a father and the role of a parent. And so we need to remember that although we come in awe and repentance and acknowledging that vast gulf that's between us, he said, that if we would approach him that way, that he would be our father 
and we would be his children. Amen.